I tell you what, recording a podcast is thirsty business, which is why we are really excited to announce that this episode of Well and Good is brought to you by Clean Collective. Clean Collective are changing the premix game by producing a range of 100% clean vodka and gin RTDs that, would you believe, contain no sugar, no carbs, no preservatives, are gluten-free and use only natural ingredients. They are a premium alternative to your stock standard run-of-the-mill RTDs, are naturally sweetened and also bloody delicious, if you ask me. Available only from your local liquor store, so next time you're in, look out for the gorgeous white bottles and cans and give them a try. Today's guest is an absolute authority on plant-based diets and someone we've actually been keen to get on the podcast for quite a while. So Simon Hill is the man behind Plant Proof, which is a website, blog, Instagram account and podcast actually, which is dedicated to answering all of your questions around um, plant-based eating. Yeah, and we put a lot of questions to him around getting enough nutrients from plant-based eating, the environmental impact and sustainability of heavy meat diets, the future of food, and a whole lot more. Just everything plant-based you can think of, we threw at him. Yeah, and he really is just so knowledgeable on the topic. It was it was quite impressive. So this is a great podcast for people at any stage of the plant-based spectrum, like maybe you've never even heard of plant-based, don't know what it is, or if you're already right into it. Simon talks about how to transition into being plant-based and how to kind of optimise it to suit your own specific goals and lifestyle. Mm. So yeah, fascinating listen and we know you're going to love it. So here we go. Welcome Simon, so nice to meet you. Thank you for having me guys, I've been looking forward to this. Oh, me too, me too. It's very cool to meet you in person because we've obviously seen you lots on the gram. (laughs) So yeah, it should be a good one. Absolutely. Hey Simon, we've got lots to cover because I want to talk about so many different things with you. So I thought we'd just jump straight into it. Can we, well, can you, can you just give our listeners a bit of a background about yourself, um, how you got so uh, involved in, I guess, plant-based nutrition, uh, I guess nutrition in general, you've got a master's in nutrition. Can you just run us through a bit of a background about how you find yourself or how you found yourself um, interested in all this sort of thing? Yeah, sure. So I I do have a um, a master's in nutrition, but I guess the the inspiration for me to to start delving into nutrition in the first place stems back to when I was fifteen years old, and um, I was with my my father, and and very long story cut short, he had a heart attack, and I was with him. It was just the two of us. Um, he's he's a doctor and and studies uh, diabetes and. You know he's in he's in the academic side of things now, um, and he very much knew what was happening. But I guess you know, like like a lot of people do, you go into a state of denial. No, I don't. Maybe I'm not having a heart attack here. And it was it was one of those heart attacks where the symptoms persisted for sort of five, six, seven hours to a point where he thought, okay, I need to I need to call um, an ambulance. And by that time, it was very late at night and we were living quite remote. I was living down in, in Melbourne, but where we were living was a long way away from, from any hospital. We, we were sort of out in the, the fringe of the country. And so he was actually airlifted uh, via a helicopter to the hospital. And he, you know, Western medicine thankfully saved his life. He was having a, a major heart attack. Um, and I, I have a huge appreciation for Western medicine. You know, it, it played a very pivotal role in um, saving his life, and, and that's why he's still here today. At the time, speaking with the cardiologist and um, his his doctor, the information that we were very much given, particularly to my brother and I, was that cardiovascular disease runs in families. And we should be careful as we're growing up and, and get routine sort of stress tests. And this could be something that affects us. So for me, for a while there, I had this kind of limiting belief that my ultimate fate was that, you know, cardiovascular disease at some stage in my life would, would be affecting me and then ultimately probably be the way that I would die. And it wasn't until... Till you know, many years later, um, in my mid twenties, that I, I my first degree I did was in physiotherapy. So I had a, a very strong interest in the, in the human body and in science and physiology and anatomy. 
And at this stage, I had started doing a lot of training and, and working out after a, a football career that didn't quite work out. And I was I was consuming the the, the typical diet that you you would see most guys consuming at at, at that age um, to to get results in the gym. And what what was that? What sort of diet did that look like? So it certainly wasn't a, a, the the unhealthiest diet by by any means. But I was consuming a, a lot of animal protein. I was very very much protein obsessed. I had very little diversity in my diet. So you know the plants that I was eating, it was the exact same ones every single time. My sole focus was on protein and total calories. And 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 to be honest. I, I did feel good, and in your twenties, you can you can eat a lot of different things, and and genuinely, gen, generally, you can feel really good. But I did at at some stage start to get interested in nutrition and and a little bit more around what my long term health might look like. And this is when, and we we can go into some of this science at some stage if you want, but. Overall, what I realized was that a lot of these chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, the disease that I'd sort of had uh, been told that ultimately one day I may or may not get, but but probably am predisposed to, a lot of these diseases run in families because they adopt the same lifestyle. And when I started to pick up this information and look at the risk factors of these diseases, I started to become more empowered because I realized, hey, you might have crummy genes, but there is so much in your control and so much more is in your control than what your genetics, what your genes control. And ultimately for me, that was, that was very empowering. And, you know, I, I went down a rabbit hole and, and was obsessed with reading research. I'd been trained in physiotherapy in my honors year, how to perform a study and do the statistical analysis. So I was able to pick up these papers and not just read the abstract, but get into how they were collecting the data, uh, what the actual data was saying and, and making sense of it. And, and I just, I, I realized that there was a lot of misinformation and that I needed to, to not only keep reading the, the the papers myself, but I need to go back and get some formal education. And, and that's when I did the, the master's in nutrition. Wow. Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. It reminds me of that, uh, that quote that is, you know, genetics loads the gun and then lifestyle pulls the trigger. I love that quote. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think with so, so many, um, illnesses, we kind of just think, oh, well, that's going to be me. You know, like it runs in my family, that's just going to be my fate. But it's so empowering to know that actually we do have the the control to, to turn that around. It doesn't have to run in families, as you say. Um, so for you then, so did then that lead you into wanting to then start a plant-based lifestyle for yourself based on health reasons? Well, I'd say immediately I, I realised that not so much that that I would adopt a plant based um, lifestyle. Certainly, that wasn't you know something I, I had on the horizon. Uh, something that that I was thinking about from the outset. Um, but I realized I had I had far too much reliance on on animal protein, and I needed to get more plants into my diet. And I, I just started to piece together what I think is an optimal diet from a characteristic point of view. And still to this day, I don't think the optimal diet is can be defined by a label, these labels that we use. I think the optimal diet is a set of characteristics and that you can achieve that on a paleo diet done, done in a certain manner. You can achieve that on a pescatarian diet in a certain manner. You can achieve it on a vegetarian diet. You can achieve it on a vegan diet. It's, it's not so much the label, it's how those diets are being constructed. You can equally do all of those diets very poorly. And so from the outset, um, I think I was able to sort of look past a lot of the dogma and understand where things were truly lying. And there is so much nuance in the literature. There's so much nuance. Um, we sometimes get caught up in whose diet is better than the other person, um, when in re- reality, there's so much uh, common ground while we don't have an absolute answer in the science as to what the single best diet is, it is quite clear what you know what what the characteristics of a of a good diet is versus a poorer diet. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, and from, I mean, from what I've been reading and what I understand, those characteristics seem to be uh, basically, from a nutritional point of view, the healthiest diet being one that is predominantly plant-based um, and with the inclusion of a small amount of uh, animal protein if you choose. Is that kind of where you think it is? Yeah, so I think, exactly. I think that the the optimal diet, firstly, it's going to be something that someone can sustain and something that that feels good for them. And we have to understand that in the literature, we're looking at averages and a typical response. So there is going to be some bio-individuality. So you have to sort of take everything that hopefully information that you're getting without dogma and then really bring it into your own lifestyle and find out what's working best for you, right? Because I could tell you that this is the single best way to eat, but if you're feeling crummy, you know, you, you have to listen to that and adjust. Um, but... I would agree. I think that the optimal diet may or may not have modest amounts of animal protein. I don't think that you could categorically say that a, a whole food plant-based diet without animal protein is superior to a very, very good, say, paleo diet that's plant predominant, has some, um, you know, very sort of uh, lean meats or wild meat and, you know, wild salmon, for example. Like it, it's going to be hard to split that. There's no study that's, that has ever done that. And, it, it, you know, to run a study to try and split that, you would, you would need to randomize people from birth, uh, run these study, you know, convince their parents to do that. You'd need to have these children uh, adopt that diet for their entire life. You'd need to control for alcohol and smoking. You need to track them for a hundred plus years, you know, or whatever. And we're never going to have that information. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's the um, tough thing around um, some of these studies to do with plant-based eating and then people say that they feel incredible and like they've they've got all this energy but then sometimes it's kind of comparing with say quite a poor diet to start with and then going plant-based you're eating a lot more veggies um so is it's not necessarily the no meat it's the cleaning up of everything else it's the um, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's any diet that they do studies on as well. It seems exactly. like most of them are just comparing it to like a, a standard Western diet. Yeah, and it, it seems like. I mean, you read so much, um, yeah. so much study literature. You must like. I don't read much, but I have this like kind of feeling that I get frustrated that it feels like people can basically prove whatever they want to prove through yeah. studies. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you guys are raising very, very good points, and. This does frustrate me. It's something that I've been writing in my book about now, and it's this compared to what, right? So often when we see a headline, something in the media, whether it's butter is back or whatever it is, we the lost message is, well, in that study, what were they comparing it to? Because you can design a study to show that anything is healthy. And like you said, you know, there are studies with a whole food plant-based diet, maybe compared to a, a, a crummy sort of association diet. It makes the whole food plant-based diet look good. Or in real life, anyone moving away from a standard Western diet to either a keto diet or a paleo diet or a plant-based diet, they feel better. And you know, a lot of a lot of the time, that anecdotal information then empowers people to go around saying that that is the single best diet. Um, but I think what people are actually experiencing is everyone is experiencing as you move away from a really crummy Western diet more towards these characteristics of what we're talking about. You will feel better. Yeah, for sure. And um, is plant based? Uh, that's sort of like a framework, isn't it? Like that doesn't necessarily mean vegan or vegetarian. Is it a little bit more Correct. loose? Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is again something that is often miscommunicated. So, even a Mediterranean diet, if it, from a from a scientific literature point of view, is considered a plant based diet, and so is a. Uh, uh, the DASH diet, which is a sort of constructed diet that's been used for people with high blood pressure. Um, but yeah, pescatarian, vegetarian, all of these different diets are considered plant-based diet, which just means that there is a predominance of calories coming from plant, whole plant foods and a, a, a a sort of a de-emphasis or, a, you know, less emphasis on these animal, animal foods compared to a Western diet. So with that, is, are there any sort of parameters around that? Like, so someone 
who's listening and they're like, hey, I have meat um, two nights a week for dinner. You know, is that the sort of thing that they could then consider themselves plant-based? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a very modest amount of, of sort of animal protein if it's twice a week. Um, you know, typ- typical diet, we're talking about the inclusion of animal products at most meals. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, because that makes me think about um, one of your podcasts that I was listening to. I can't remember who it was with, but you mentioned some – stat that I found very interesting, and I don't mean to put you on the spot because I don't want to <laughs> make you try and remember something, but it was to do with the amount um, of meat that people consume, and it was to do with like um, uh, just having meat at dinner compared with meat during lunchtime as well and something. Can you remember anything about what that was? I'm not sure if this I mean, I'm was this so a, vague I'm not, here, man. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure if this was a, a health study or a planetary health study perhaps there's oh it was planetary health the, Sorry, yeah, yeah it was sort of sustainability there's some interesting stuff on 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 planetary health in that there was a, a study um out of oxford university or or john hopkins perhaps um anyway this was really interesting because they essentially compared to a, a sort of omnivorous diet a completely vegan diet reduces your um uh, your environmental footprint from a greenhouse gas point of view, so not not considering um, land use and, and anything else, which we, we can we can go into if you wanted to, um, but it reduces your greenhouse gas sort of footprint by seventy percent. Your food related greenhouse gases. Um, what was interesting was that a vegetarian diet was not as good as a what they called a flexitarian or two third vegan diet, where there was uh, one meal a day with animal protein. And the reason is that in a vegetarian diet, there is typically quite a focus on dairy. And dairy has a a much higher uh, environmental footprint from a greenhouse gas point of view. So the flexitarian diet, which was mainly, you know, including like uh, chicken or fish at dinner, had a had a much much lower. It was forty percent lower than a typical omnivorous diet. So it wasn't as low as a, a vegan diet, but it was significantly better and, and a great way for someone to to lower their footprint. Yeah, that's quite a that's quite interesting, eh? That's fascinating. So why is it? Do you know that um, dairy is so much higher than, say, meat? Well, it depends on the meat. So it wasn't beef, I should say, as a disclaimer. Oh, right, I got yeah. you. Um, yeah. It does depend on, on what – so beef and dairy typically have the the, the two largest footprints and, and it's a it's a combination of the the greenhouse gas emissions, which are, are largely through methane. Um, there are some carbons to do with the, the sort of supply of the food, depending if it's factory farmed or, or wild. Not wild, I should say pasture-raised. Um, and – the, the other factor would be the land use. So because the land use is so big and there's, you know, animal agriculture is the leading cause of deforestation, when you factor in the amount of carbon that the, the carbon sequestration potential of that land, then it, it becomes an enormous generator of, of greenhouse gas emissions. So, okay, so I'm just thinking, like, here in New Zealand, most people are thinking about where their meat and milk comes from, and it's most of it's sort of grassy mm-hmm. grasslands. Would that be the same sort of, you know, those sort of stats and those figures? Is that coming? Is that coming from that those pastures, or is it mainly coming from factory farming in the states? Yeah, no. This is, I mean, this is a really, really interesting point because that's. That's actually what I used to think, and I thought here in Australia, same thing, because everyone says, oh, well, in Australia, it's all grazing. Um, definitely in Australia, the leading cause of deforestation here is still ripping down our forests. Uh, sorry, is still uh, making room for for livestock on inland, particularly in Queensland. Um, and a lot of that is to keep up with the growing export demand from countries like China and India. Something else that we have to consider is that a lot of the the current grazing land, even though we see it as as grazing land, there are really good studies. I'm not sure if this extends to New Zealand, and uh, so I'm speaking about Australia here. But about fifty percent of the Australian grazing land 
actually used to used to be um, sort of densely populated with type, different types of shrubs and plants that can sequester a lot of carbon. So the when when you when you start to 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 think about the carbon sequestration potential of some of this land right and if we were able to return some of this land to what it would have been historically um it it makes a strong case for moving away from some of the animal agriculture that we have now this then becomes problematic because what do you do with farmers how do you how do you reward them for using their land like that and I don't have all the answers for that but um, what I can tell you is that across the world when you if you look at the the land use for agriculture 83% of all the land we use for agriculture is for animal agriculture right only 17% is for for plant food that ends up going straight to humans that 83% for animal agriculture is a combination of land that animals are on plus land to create food for them, right? And that that 83% of land for animals only produces 18% of our calories, yet it produces 80% of our greenhouse gas emissions from our food. So it's a really, really inefficient, you know, global system that we have and, um, and, you know, to my knowledge, I'm again, I don't know specifically about New Zealand, but I definitely know in Australia, we are continuing to pull down forests to make way for, for more grazing land. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm keen to hear your thoughts about, um, so say, for example, if, if everybody goes um, plant-based, do you, do you think that there would be a huge increase in things like monocropping and the, the use of pesticides and herbicides and glyphosate that are uh, doing huge damage to to our planet like what are your thoughts on that it's a, a again a very good question I think we we first should understand where most of the monocrops are going right now today so if you look at say soy six um, percent of the world's soy is fed direct to humans six percent right? About 14% goes to make biofuels and 80% of the world's soy is fed to cattle. So if we're wow. against monocropping, we need to be against factory farming because this is, this is a huge driver. The two go hand in hand. Yeah, the two go hand in hand. This is driving, this is driving deforestation. It's increasing the use of glyphosate. It's destroying our soil. Um, so we need to we need to move away from that. And that's you know so like regenerative agriculture. Whilst I think there's a little bit of nuance there to to potentially explore, um, I'm very much pro that model because it is about improving the soil. I think that there could be some debate around where it sits as a climate solution, and and perhaps it needs to come with a shift to eating more plant based diets because ultimately there will be less meat supply. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of model that I'm I'm definitely pro. I I don't think it's vegans that are pro monocropping uh, by by any means. And I agree that if if we're going to ramp up innovation like plant based meats, I know that these companies right now they're only using the only reason that they're using say pea and soy is because it's all they can access because that's what all the the big farms are using. But in reality, there's hundreds and hundreds of different plant-based proteins that we haven't even explored. So they they're waiting to to test to to grow to a big enough size to be able to use polyculture instead of monocropping and create diversity across the land and and ultimately create better products at the same time. That's fascinating. I had no idea about that. That's, yeah. Wow. That's you know what I reckon would be cool? I reckon it'd be awesome if all of the farming the um you know the animal farming was just overnight turned to regenerative regenerative agriculture and then what you have to probably i guess then everyone would maybe have to oh, what cut down to 3 4 meals of meat a week Maybe I'm basing this yeah. on absolutely no knowledge at all. <laughs> well, but I'm thinking yeah. like that's a good guess. Yeah. You know, mean, imagine if imagine if that was you know that were like the everyone just decided hey this is how we're going to save the planet this is what we got to do, bam. Yeah, I think you know you're right. We don't know the exact maths on it, but I did see one study if in America if they were because they're very much reliant on factory farming, right? The reverse of 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 Australia and New Zealand. 
if they say they wanted to produce the same amount of meat as they do today through through um, grass fed systems, they would need to use two hundred and seventy percent more land. Because we have to admit, one thing that's great about factory farms and the reason they've been used is they can produce a lot of beef quickly, right? And on less on less land. So as you as you move to less um, sort of intensive, more grazing systems, the there's more land required, and also the animals take much longer to reach their slaughter weight. So this is also an interesting fact about traditional grass-fed. And I know you're talking about regenerative, which is different, but traditional grass-fed per unit of beef actually produces more methane than factory-farmed meat, and that's because the animal lives about twice as long to get to its slaughter weight. Wow. Wow, yeah, that's fascinating. It's certainly not as black and white as we think it is, isn't it? Yeah. And all of the science is, is all relatively new, isn't it? All of the regenerative agriculture stuff, talking about uh, carbon sequestration back into the soils and things. Sounds like it's coming along at quite a rapid rate at the moment. Would you agree? Yeah, I think, look, I, I think it definitely, we can't argue that it improves soil. Hands down, improves soil. And there's enough sort of science there to show that. The, the thing that I haven't seen to date is that the carbon sequestration is actually greater than the amount of emissions from the animal. So what I've seen to date is that the carbon sequestration that you can get from these systems offsets about 40 to 60% of the emissions from the animal. So what that means is, yes, it's a more effective system, right? And there's a big report on this that I think Grayson confused. I might have sent it to you. But... Um, in the peer-reviewed literature, that, that's, that's what we see today. And what that means is it's definitely a step in the right direction. It's definitely uh, producing less emissions for, you know, to, to produce this meat. But on its own, it's not a climate solution going to get us out of the climate situation we're in now because if we look at the, the sort of Paris Agreement in 2015 and what the goals are, we actually have to get down to, to, to a carbon neutral um, stage, so we we need sequestration coming in and 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 not exceeding our our emissions. Mm. Look, I'll admit, Art and I aren't the biggest drinkers, but boy, do we make an exception when it comes to Clean Collective's range of one hundred percent clean vodka and gin RTGs. Yeah, these drinks are completely free from sugar, carbs and preservatives and they're super yum. So they really tick all of our boxes, don't they Matt? They sure do. Clean Collective was actually founded by two young Kiwis, Holly and Dan, and all their products are made right here in New Zealand. So by choosing to drink Clean Collective, you're not only making a better choice for your body, but are supporting local at the same time. Win-win. They have a range of five delicious flavours, including a brand new pear and elderflower with vodka, and are available in four packs of bottles or large 12 packs of cans. Whether you're heading out to a family barbecue or planning a big night out, they've got you covered. You can purchase them from your local liquor store and you'll usually find them in the fridges alongside the other premixes. They're the ones in the crisp white packaging. I hear they're also the official drink of the Rhythm and Vines Festival, which is very cool also. Oh, love that. So be sure to give them a follow at Clean Collective Official on Instagram and Facebook or head to their website www.cleancollective.co for more information. Cheers to drinking clean. Okay, so from a sustainability point of view, what do you think are some things that someone listening to this right now who doesn't follow a plant-based diet could potentially consider um, in changing about their their diet, their um, behavior that might be, you know, enable them to do something positive mm. in terms of climate change? Okay, so if we're, we're talking about diet here, I, I believe. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I think, and actually this is, a, a, again, a really interesting um area of research, I used to think that the most important thing for our environmental food print, footprint from our food was whether we were buying local or not. And I think that most people think that, right? Or many people probably. Yeah, I mean, that. I thought that was a, a big disclaimer. Hard. I kind of do. Yeah. So yeah. I'm interested to hear where this yes. is going. <laughs> yes. So, and I'm not saying that buying local is bad. I buy local. I think that everyone should buy local. So let me just preface that there. But I think we should understand our reasons for buying local within the context of our overall food system. So if, if you look at the greenhouse gas emissions from food, 
the the amount that is from transport of, of every food is 10% or lower. The bulk amount of greenhouse gases is in the 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 growing process or the processing process. So if you look at say beef, it doesn't matter where it comes from in the world, the transport makes up 1% of its footprint. 1%. So it doesn't matter where you're buying that beef from really. You're not really changing the environmental footprint that much of it because there are so many emissions related to the 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 growing and the processing aspect of getting that food to the grocery store. So the that dilutes down the amount that the transport is actually contributing. Right. So by far the most important thing, and I'm, I'm going to send you guys a link so you can put this into the, the references. There's a, a, a great um, paper by um, an environmental researcher, Hannah Ritchie. Um, she works for, for Our World in, in data and she has some great graphs that, that spell this out. By far the most important thing is how many plants you're eating because the footprint of these plants is so much lower than meat wherever you're getting it from right and then so so first is what you're eating and then second is definitely you can lower your footprint further by supporting local and it's great to support local and and your local community for many reasons so definitely i'm all about that but i think we should uh, we should sort of be doing that within the context of understanding that you know it is, it is, you know, how many plants we're eating and, and sort of de-emphasizing the animal foods in our diet that will contribute the most to, to lowering our environmental footprint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very, very interesting because um, you have actually developed a vegan food pyramid, right? Mm. Um, so can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I've got a, a food pyramid which is by no means prescriptive, it's, it's literally um, a guide. You know, going back to what I said earlier, I think people, you know, still need to feel it out and you'll work out what f- works best for you. For example, I don't think it really matters um, to an extent how much fat we're eating as long as we're eating the right types of fats. And, and I think fat's demonized, but really... Um, you know, what matters most is, is the type of fat. So there might be some people who, who adopt a whole food plant-based diet and eat more fats um, than others. And there might be others that prefer to eat less nuts, seeds, olive oils and things and, and eat more whole grains, you know, brown rice and, and quinoa and, and whatnot. So I do have a pyramid. It, it, it sort of goes through uh, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, oils, things like that. Um, and, you know, around the pyramid, I, I talk about nutrients of focus. So some of the, the, the key nutrients that someone who is, is eliminating animal foods should be concentrating on. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So I want to talk about that. Um, the foods that you've, yeah, for someone who say today, they're like, cool, I'm going to go um, follow a plant-based diet, see how I feel. What, um, what do they need to consider? With that, what foods do they need to make sure they're getting, um, so that they're getting the right macronutrients and micronutrients? Yep. yep. Uh, so I guess high level, just thinking about a difference between animal and plant foods is calorie density. So what I find is not always, but a lot of a lot of the time, when people transition and remove animal products, they don't end up eating enough calories. And it's because they're, they're filling up on, on, you know, less calorie dense foods that are high in volume and contain more fiber. So, so things like rice and quinoa and yeah. that sort of thing. And well, I, I mean, I noticed this, like I, I, um, I went plant-based for a month, uh, a few months ago and last year, was it? Yeah, it was ages ago. Um, and for the first two weeks, I felt myself like lacking energy and it wasn't until I looked at what I was eating and the amounts I was eating. I was like, I'm not eating enough. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that's a really common thing. The the hey, I'm I'm not feeling energy. I think it's the I think I need animal products for energy. And nine times out of ten, it's they're literally just not eating enough calories. And so, you know, there's a few ways of getting around that. And that's, you know, going thinking about what are the most calorie dense plant foods. Well, they're your nuts and your seeds and your avocados and your and you know, oils, whether it's olive oil or avocado oil, things like that to try and increase the calorie density in your meals, uh, particularly if you're struggling with food volume, you know, f- 
in terms of eating a lot of whole grains and potato and stuff, which can be quite a lot of food, you know, to begin with, if you're not used to eating those things at every meal. So then you've got to basically be looking at ways in which you can increase the amount of macronutrients in your diet. So you're getting enough protein and fats because carbohydrates probably wouldn't be too much of a problem, right? Yeah. So most people, if you're, if you're, if you're eating, you know, whole grains and legumes, you're, you're going to to be getting enough carbohydrates, you don't really need to focus in on that too much, for sure. Yeah. And so what about then the micronutrients? Because there's some, you know, there's a lot of talk about not being able to get all of, um, you know, certain vitamins uh, and minerals, well, I don't know about minerals, but vitamins, specifically B12, from a plant-based diet. How do you go about um, factoring that in? Yeah, so definitely anyone who is adopting a, a plant-based diet without any animal products in their diet should be taking B12. Um, mind you, I think anyone who potentially is sort of moving away from a standard Western diet and even anyone on a standard Western diet should really be getting their B12 levels checked. There's a there's a study, um, the Framingham uh, study, which showed that around 39% of the general public in that study had either low or deficient levels of B12. So it's by no means a, a completely sort of vegan thing. Um, interestingly, B12, and the reason the reason that is, and, and I've gone into that because I was thinking, why on earth could, could omnivores be developing B12 deficiency if they're eating all these animal products? And what it comes down to is, we're going full circle here, soil quality. So so B12 is made by bacteria in the in a ruminant's gut, right? And it relies on a mineral called cobalt in the soil. Now, as our so- as as we have more, you know, intensified our agriculture practices in various parts of the world and depending on where the the animals are raised, there can be very low levels of cobalt in the in the soil and if they're in a factory farm then they're not getting out on the soil and eating soil so they're usually supplemented anyway with with cobalt um, um, or you know b12 in their food so the it, it's quite possible that a lot of omnivores are if depending on where their meat's coming from that the meat may not contain appreciable amounts of B12, which is interesting. Um, but also that studies have shown in terms of B12 absorption, B12 binds to animal protein. And particularly as we get older, so the 50 plus age group is is a sort of high risk, no matter what diet you're following for B12 deficiency. And it's to do with a, a change in gastric enzymes, which can break down that 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 bond between B12 and animal protein. So um, in most countries, anyone over the age of 50 is recommended to get B12 through a supplement or fortified foods, which is something a lot, a lot of people are not aware that's of. That's interesting. Hey? Yeah. yeah. So um, that's that's something for, for sort of everyone, I guess, if you're not following a, a, a vegan diet. And then- so- Sorry, I was just going to say, so how, how, do then, how do you go about testing your B12? Is it something you can just go to your doctor and say, hey, can I test my B12? Yeah, so you can, you can go into your doctor and you can get a serum B12 test. And that is not the most sensitive test, but it's usually the, the one that's covered by the, the sort of over here, we call it Medicare. Um, and if they're a little bit worried about the level on that, they might order um, – a test they might test for another marker called homocysteine or MMA, which gives a, a, a sort of better idea as to to what someone's B12 status is. But long story short, if you do sp- visit your doctor, you can you know get them to investigate your your B12 status. Um, and then yeah, for for someone who's following a completely plant based diet, you know no question about it, they should be supplementing with with B12. Um, and you can do that sort of three different ways. You could buy B12 fortified foods. So there's a bunch of foods that uh, are fortified with B12, like nutritional yeast. Now, that's my least preferred option because you you need 
you need to be really on your A game with that. You need to be having those foods three times a day spaced out, um, not all at once. And Yeah, right. That's quite intensive, especially if you're, you know, you're making a deliciously um, sweet uh, sort of fruit smoothie and then you've got to put your nutritional yeast in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I think nutritional yeast is a, a great um, addition to someone's diet, but I would prefer people to get their B12 consistently through a supplement. And then you can either take it uh, daily, about 250 micrograms, or you can take it weekly, about 2,500 micrograms just once. Yeah, gotcha. You can also get injections as well, right? Yeah. So there's another, um, there's a form of B12 called hydroxy uh, cobalamin and you can you can do injections. So um, great option. Uh, it's a little bit more expensive, but so it just comes down to the the individual. Yeah, okay, gotcha. What about um, okay, so you what about being careful with toxicity or um, you know, because I'm just thinking I like to eat nuts and I'm thinking, hey, do I eat too many nuts because it's an easy way of getting calories in, right? Or like too many, you know, yeah, nuts is what I'm thinking of, but also some of the other toxins in plants, like um, I think like lectins or phytic acid or, you know, those sort of, I think oxalates is another thing. Like, do you have to be wary of that sort of stuff? And do you, do you sprout foods and what do you do? Yeah. So I guess maybe we'll start with lectins. Um, sometimes these are called anti-nutrients. So it's, okay. this, is a, this is a good, um, a good question, and then we can come back to some of the the minerals we've that that I think people should focus on as well. Um, but I guess with lectins, the the science on on lectins being harmful for humans is is really based on on studies that are looking at lectins in a petri dish, dish sort of in vitro, or are looking at people that are consuming like raw beans. Right, and and you're not going to consume raw beans. That's you know nature gives you uh, feedback. Don't do that. Um, and I think an analogy that works really well here is uh, oxygen. Like, w- w- would you would you agree with me that oxygen is healthy and we we need it, right? Yeah. Okay. So I think in 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 the air that we breathe, it's the oxygen concentration is around twenty one percent. I might be off, it might be 23, 24, 25, whatever, low 20s, right? And at that percentage, that concentration, it's, it's very healthy for us. It, we need it to, to sustain life. Um, and if we were to consume 100% oxygen, it would be toxic and we would die, right? So when we look at lectins, I think we need to, to understand, we need to look at this in a similar sort of mindset. Usually the dose is the poison with a lot of things in life. And I feel like it's, I feel like it's the poison with everything, yeah. you know, like you could probably overconsume broccoli and, you know, make yourself quite sick from that. Absolutely. And what we see is when you, when you cook foods, when you soak foods, which, you know, with nuts, people call that activating, um, when you sprout foods, when you do this, you you dramatically reduce the lectin content. Cooking nearly destroys all of the lectins in foods, almost depending on on the food. So, I don't think that that lectins are something we actually need to be too concerned by. I think if we keep zooming out and we look at really healthy populations that are thriving, that have low rates of heart disease, low rates of these diseases that we're all getting, right? You know, legumes is one of the cornerstones of, of many of these diets, yet legumes are very, very rich in their raw form um, in lectins. So, you know, if if lectins were sort of this, um, this, very, very detrimental toxin. I think we would see that playing out on a on a large scale. So if you're if you're practicing, you know, in terms of preparing your food properly, then I don't think you have anything to worry about. Um, but yeah, getting into the routine of of soaking nuts, it's it it what that does is is it it essentially wakes up that nut and it makes the minerals more bioavailable to you. So you're going to break down some of these anti nutrients. You're going to free up some of those minerals, whether it's um, you know your zinc or or um, calcium in the in the in in the case of certain foods, and your body's going to be able to better absorb those. So, how do you do that? Do you soak them sort of uh, 24 hours, or with a certain time frame? 
Yeah, so soaking, yeah, definitely. Most It depends on the seed, but most of them are sort of 8 to 12 hours, so you can just do that overnight. Um, and sprouting is something that I've recently uh, gotten into quite a bit. And, again, the the sort of time of, of germination for that seed to to sort of sprout is it varies but the the sort of overall typical protocol is you soak those seeds overnight for example i've got broccoli seeds right now um you just soak them overnight that activates them and then you you drain out all that water twice a day you're going to rinse them and just leave the container sort of on an on an angle upside down so it can drain out and I'll send you a link that I, I wrote a blog on this to, to sort of do the steps. Um, it's very easy. Um, and within days, you, you, you can grow, you know, really delicious sprouts that are, you know, full of, full of nutrients. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm sure our listeners would like to do that. I'm, I'm quite keen to get into some sprouting as well. I, um, my dad has actually just started sprouting. He was just telling me about it the other day. Um, and what is so? What is a what is it about sprouting? Is that sort of that basically when those seeds are just in that sprouting um, cycle of life that they're sort of at their most nutrient dense, or what's the deal? Yeah. So sort of, uh, I guess per gram or yeah per unit of weight, they're very very con. They're a very concentrated source of. Um, of the nutrients that they contain. So imagine like broccoli seeds, they they hold all of this knowledge and, and nutrition to grow into a really big uh, stalk of broccoli. But you can you can harness and capture all of that uh, energy and potential in a much smaller form. And you can if you consume you can consume you know a half a cup or a cup of that quite easily, right? And and there's a molecule in there, uh, sulforaphane. Which is a phytochemical that has anti-carcinogenic properties, and you need to you need to consume about half a cup a day to to get a therapeutic dose of that. Um, and you know, to get that amount out of broccoli, you just you would you would you'd have probably some serious gas, and <laughs> and you would have to consume a lot of broccoli. So the the you know the the neat thing is you can do this sprouting at home. You don't need a green thumb, super cheap. To, to, to create half a cup of these at home is going to cost you about 50 cents. Um, you gotta, no, you got to buy some glass jars and, and trays to get you set up, but um, you know that's going to cost maybe $30 and then you're up and running. And um, you know it's, it's, it's fun. You can do it. We get your kids involved and you can just see um, you know, the potential of these seeds and see, see things come to life. It's cool. That's very cool. Um, I just want to touch on something that uh, my dad, now that we were talking about my dad, what he wanted me to ask you. um, He wanted to know if I said, hey, I'm talking to Simon Hill today. Um, Are there any questions you have for him? And he's like, I mean, you know, he's pretty much answered all my questions from listening to his podcast, but I do have one question. Um, Is there any research on a plant-based diet uh, helping with arthritis? And so I want to know the answer to that question, but also just in general, um, what do you? How do you see plant a plant based diet being used as a, um, I guess, a treatment for sort of illnesses and ailments? Great question. Um, so I had a podcast with a guy called Clint Patterson, who he he himself has rheumatoid arthritis, so autoimmune type of arthritis. Um, and there's a whole uh, rheumatoid arthritis community out there following a whole food plant-based diet. They get their best results doing it in a very low-fat way. So you know how I said before, people will uh, people will, will play around with things and some people will feel better with higher fat and some with lower. They get their, their best results. Keep in mind, this is an autoimmune condition. It's different to osteoarthritis. They get their best results um, with a very sort of low-fat, whole food, plant-based diet, and some of the results are phenomenal in terms of they don't. Re- you can't reverse this autoimmune condition, but you can put the symptoms into remission. And there are many people who went from you know very debilitating symptoms to completely symptom-free. And Clint himself, um, I think he's aged maybe in his early 40s, he's, he's living proof of that. Um, so that's one. Um, I think... Would that be, sorry, would that be, would that be basically because essentially you're um, reducing the amount of inflammation in your body? 
And so, you know, if, if that is the case, then kind of any condition that is, um, you know, a result of inflammation, then that might yeah, I think, benefit it. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's probably microbiome mediated, to, to, to be fair. Um, there are, you know, I'm not going to say that the, the science on a whole food plant-based diet being anti-inflammatory is kind of overly convincing. I don't think there's huge amounts of data on any particular diet, but there is some um, some studies, again, we can talk about what is it compared to, like they compared it to an, an American Diabetes Association diet and a whole food plant-based diet, you know, significantly lowered inflammatory markers. Um, so I think, yeah, I, th- I mean, I hear benefit from all sorts of conditions, whether it's people with lupus, people with uh, even even people living with type one diabetes, like Drew Harrisburg that you you had on the show. So, oh, mate, Drew. Yeah. So I think there are success stories everywhere. Um, there, you know, we probably need a bit more science on some of those those things. I think so, and 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 they're very very interesting. But I don't like to overly give too much emphasis just to anecdotes because they are on all sides. You know, there are anecdotes on, on a carnivore diet. So, um, you know, I think here we, we, we need to be fair to, to that. Um, but yeah, certainly, um, particularly rheumatoid arthritis, I, uh, I've heard a lot of anecdotal information of benefit. Mm. Yeah. I think there, there is a lot of anecdotal, um, stuff on many different, uh, diets and I think a lot of it comes down to your beliefs you know like if you believe that this uh, way of eating or this you know new behavior that you've started implementing if you believe that it's going to be helping you then chances are it probably will yeah I agree I mean and 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 yeah maybe you clean up other things in your lifestyle and um, you know the the, the chains of your plate can can extend into uh, what you're doing exercise wise and you know sleep wise and things like that so um you know it's hard to hard to rule all that stuff out mm. yeah just talking about exercise and stuff like that do you um what do you think about a plant-based diet as a as a uh, a form of uh you know as a way to improve physical ability you know i'm just thinking about the game changers movie which um you know a lot of people have probably seen um and yeah what are your thoughts on that Again, I think the the best diet for for an athlete comes down to what's sustainable for them. What can what can they get nutritional adequacy from um, is important, and it really comes down to the support that's around them. Um, you know, while someone an athlete may do tremendously well on a whole food plant based diet, and and particularly if they're coming off of a crummy diet, you know, someone else may may do better on a, a plant predominant diet. Um, it depends on on sort of how closely you're following your diet, what your support team's like, um, and how your body responds to to different foods. But I do think a, a plant predominant diet, definitely, whether that does or doesn't include animal products, is a is a great way for an athlete to to be fueling their body for sure. Mm. How about so when you how, how how exactly did you start going plant based? Did you just go cold turkey? Did you gradually get into it? And and how did you feel once uh, once you started doing that? Yeah, so I had removed dairy when I was about seventeen years old, and that was not really for any other reason than I connected with the fact that after I was having dairy, I was I was sort of losing energy and and feeling tired, and I wasn't performing that well from a, a physical perspective. So, um, so for me, I, when I was making this transition, you know, later in, in, into my twenties, the main thing that I did was remove red meat and, and chicken at the start. So I was kind of consuming this well pescatarian style diet with eggs for a while. And, um, you know, I, that was a step for me. That was a, a great step. I, I felt I think that's a, this is another um, important thing is that we can't discount how important confidence is. And I think if I had have just tried to go cold turkey, like you said, I p- may have just given up and just gone back to, to what I knew. Um, so I had I did step it out quite slowly. And over six months, um, you know, I was making these changes. I was feeling great. I was, you know, reducing further. Um, and, you know, to, to be honest, like today I could – 
still quite easily, you know, consume more of a plant predominant diet and consume fish and, and, you know, eggs, you know, in, in modest sort of portions. But I connected with the, the planetary health aspect and, um, you know, I need to be transparent about that. That's why I personally follow a 100% uh, whole food plant-based diet. It's not that I think it's superior from a human health point of view um, to, a, to a plant predominant diet. Yeah, that's cool. Do you, do you find that you have to be weary when you're reading all these like studies and things like that, that you kind of want to figure out the bias of the person doing the study? Yeah. Like, as you know, before you even read into the study, because I imagine like there are probably not that many um, uh, omnivorous, uh, you know, proponent scientists that would then discover that eating a plant-based diet is more beneficial in some way. I feel like I feel like most most of these studies are done by like approving points that the people doing them want to want to want to prove. Yeah, definitely. So I mean, looking at the funding sources is is critical. Um, we can't rule out all studies just based on the funding source, though, because you know we would we would we would remove so much science. So I think it, it essentially what it does is it 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 sort of makes you approach the the study with a tiny bit more skepticism, and you know looking at the methodology a little bit closer. Um, you know, most most of these studies they're not like fraudulent. It's just that if let's say for example a study is funded by um, uh, dairy and not all dairy studies that are funded by dairy are bad, but let's just say uh, you wanted to show that um, that that milk uh, in terms of uh, cholesterol was of benefit. You could compare it to refined carbohydrates, and if we do that, we will show that consuming. Um, consuming full fat dairy compared to refined carbohydrates will lower someone's cholesterol. So there are there are tactics and it goes back to what I was, you know, earlier. <laughs> do they do they actually make studies like that? I mean, there's a there's a plethora of studies out there showing that the saturated high saturated fat is not harmful and if you go into all of these studies there's two so there's two main tactics that are used. One is um and let me preface this by saying that it's not about getting no saturated fat in your diet because we're always going to have some. But there is a level at about 10% of your total calories that we know compared to someone getting lower than that, compare them to someone above, and that person who is above has higher risk of heart disease. But if we go and run studies where we compare someone at 14% with someone at 18%, we see no difference, but they're both above that threshold anyway, right? So um, that's that's sort of you know one tactic that you can you can do, and that's basically they're not they're not actually investigating the right exposure levels. Yeah, um, totally. And then the second thing is, yeah, what are you what are you actually um, comparing to food wise? So um, you know, back to that example, if you compare saturated fat to refined carbohydrates, it makes saturated fat look very good. If you compare saturated fat to unrefined, you know, carbohydrates from whole plant foods, then it doesn't look so good. Yeah, you're just not comparing apples with apples. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey. We are uh, we are getting close to running out of time, Simon. But we've got one final question that we ask everyone, which is: if you could have, uh, if you could only eat three foods for the rest of your life, what would they be? Oh, am I going to have my indulgent hat on or my nutritionist hat on here? Well, yep. this is the question. <laughs> That's the conundrum. <laughs> it's different with everyone. Yeah, and oh, now we're okay. after we're after like yeah. single ingredients, please, not okay. like. Uh, not like a pizza, but yeah. you could have, say, yeah. you know, vegan cheese. Yeah, I'm going to say firstly lentils. Ooh, yep. So that would probably be my my protein, versatile. my protein source. Yeah, versatile. You can you can throw that in a pasta and sort of make a bolognese. You can do a lasagna. Uh, you can do you know like a, a sort of dal um, Indian flavor. These are a lot of other ingredients that that you're going to be okay, uh, so it's needing just, for okay, these different things. Well, <laughs> well, I can eat lentils out of a can, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank God for that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll say uh, lentils. Um, I'm going to say this one's tough. 
I'm going to go with brown rice. Oh, okay. yum. Yeah, you don't mind a bit of rice, do you, Yeah, man? I love rice. I'm going to go with brown rice. So I've got something that's high in protein. I've got something that is uh, is is very rich in unrefined carbohydrates and is 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 healthy in in almost every single study. Um, very filling as well. Yeah. yeah. Like, so yeah, you, you just have a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. Just, and the, the first two, you're definitely wearing your nutritionist hat. For. Yeah. And then, I mean, even the third one, I'm wearing my nutritionist hat because <laughs> I'm throwing avocado in there. Uh, oh yeah. And and those three go well together. Um, and, you know, it's it's nice to get some of the fats in there. Yeah, good choice. In yeah, fact, that's yeah, a good well-rounded three. Actually. Avocado's been a, a predominant uh, choice for a lot of our guests. I'd say it's been an 80% of <laughs> people's top three. Oh, it's it? so versatile and so nutrient-dense, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I really like that, actually. Yeah, because then you could mash the... Uh, lentils into the avocado and have some kind of, you know, sludge, sludgy <laughs> porridgey thing going on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, so Simon, thank you so much, man. Hey, if people want to check out what you're up to, they want to check out your um, plant-based pyramids, maybe, I mean, do you have like recipes and yeah, uh, ideas I've, and things like that yeah, on the I've, website? I've got some uh, recipes on there. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's probably like 30 or 40 or something on there, not, uh, a, yeah. not a huge amount. I think most, most of, of what I have is information. But yeah, if people want to check out the pyramid or learn more about those sort of nutrients of focus, then all of that's there. Okay, cool. And what's the website? And what's uh, your Instagram? So website's just plantproof.com and Instagram is plant underscore proof. Yep. And your podcast is just plantproof. Yeah. It's keeping it easy. Fantastic. Cool. Thank you so much uh, for today, man. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Thank you indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Raw Collective. And for any updates on our podcast or any of the other podcasts under Raw, head to rawcollective.co or you can follow them on Instagram at raw underscore collective.co. But wait, before you go, please subscribe to our podcast and also rate it and review it. Leave a nice little message, leave a smiley face, maybe an emoji. (laughs) (laughs) Or tell your friends. It's super easy. It takes two seconds and it would mean so much to us. Bye. Bye.